Teresa and I met in early January to talk about what it was like to be her. We planned to go for a walk, but 15 mile an hour winds put us off, so instead we snagged a table at the local library with a window that overlooked the park. In the background, you might hear books being shelved, pages turning, and a toddler trying to make an escape. As we settled in, Teresa asked how this would work, and I said, tell me your earliest memory. I remember when I was about six years old, we lived in Colorado, and um, I have two brothers. One's a year older than me, and the other one is about two years younger. And we were in love with the Beatles, like everybody. And we used to stand up on top of this hill and pretend like we were the Beatles and sing Beatles songs in the snow, like the movie Help. You know how they did the... Have you ever seen the movie I Help? have not. And oh I'm my embarrassed gosh. to say that I have yes, not seen the movie Help. See Probably my so daughter has seen it. That was kind of our impression of, of them standing on the, in the movie and doing our impression, impression of the Beatles. And I was Paul McCartney. And who are your brothers? Well, my younger brother, I don't remember who he was. I remember my older brother was always in charge and always got to be the person he wanted to be. And he was uh, Ringo and John Lennon. He switched back and forth because he wanted to sing and he also wanted to be the drummer. So what was your relationship with your brothers like? We were pretty close. Um, when we were younger... Well, when we were younger, we were very close. A lot of the time we were, um, this isn't one of my better memories, but my dad was an alcoholic. And um, during that time, he was, that was one of the happier drinking periods, I think. And um, we were not allowed to be too loud or to be too crazy, and we would get in trouble, and my dad was... Um, his, his thing was to use the belt. And so if we didn't get along and we knew that he noticed we weren't getting along, then it was a very quick turnaround to pretend like, you know, we were just playing or if somebody got hurt, it was totally an accident. Nobody ever hit anybody or did anything wrong because we knew that we'd all get whipped with the belt if we admitted that we were fighting over something. So I think that made us a lot closer when we were younger. Built some solidarity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And as we got older, you know, um, early teens and stuff, it was, I always felt like it was, you know, my brothers against me. They'd kind of team up, and I was the middle child and the only girl, so I always felt like I was, you know, being um, singled out and things like that, so. Were you, were you always in Colorado? No, um, my dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around a lot. Um, I was born in England, and um, we lived in Mississippi a couple times. We lived in Dover, Delaware during the Vietnam War, and the reason I remember that is because my mom said she hated living there because that's where they brought the bodies in from the war. So I know it was during that time. Um, don't remember much about Dover other than that. But uh, we lived in Mississippi when I was a toddler, and then again when I was in elementary and junior high school, part of junior high school. I remember being starting junior high school at the same time when they started integrating the schools, 
So that was kind of interesting. Uh, don't remember any major incidents or anything like that. I just remembered that that was a big deal that I was starting school and that they were integrating the schools at the same time. So. Was your dad an alcoholic the whole time you were a child or was this just a piece of, he I mean, did he ever recover? He recovered about 40, I wanna say 45 years ago. He recovered when I was a teenager and um, up until that point, he was an alcoholic, and um, it was a big part of our growing up. We, we have a lot of very interesting memories about my dad's drinking. Um, we lived in Germany for a while, and um, we all woke up one day to my dad's car parked in the middle of our front yard, which is a story that my brothers um, like to tell a lot. They think it's pretty funny. Um, we, when we moved from Germany, we moved from Germany to, Germany to England, um, there was an issue with the movers and I guess um, my dad kind of got into a big fight with them because he was drinking. So there were a lot of, of different kinds of memories. I remember being a teenager um, having a really hard time being around my dad when it was just me and him because I was always very uncomfortable with he would get very emotional and, and very um, fatherly when he wasn't normally you know and it was kind of weird to be around because like that, that was not your expectation from him it was just uncomfortable you know I don't understand I never really understood why because I wasn't when I was younger, my dad always called me his princess, and I always thought he was the best thing ever. But I think as I got older and realized things that were going on, I became less comfortable around him. And um, I just remember, you know, sitting, him sitting on a stool in the kitchen and, and wanting me to sit and talk to him and me not being comfortable around him. So at what point do you have a, a time point where you said to yourself, my dad is an alcoholic? Did you even have that consciousness? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know at what point. I mean, obviously when I was younger, we didn't, you know, like first, second, third grade or whatever, we didn't really um, understand that much about what was going on. Um, I think as we got older... You know, we heard the fighting between my mom and my dad, and we we would see him come home, and he would be drunk, and um, you know, just I think we were just more aware as we got older, um, probably like early teens. Did he come from a family of alcoholics, or was something triggered? Yeah, he came from a well. He he was the youngest of ten children. Um, Catholic family. His mother was Irish. His dad was Dutch, German, something like that. Um, his dad was a police officer in uh, near New York, somewhere around that area. And he um, drowned in the bathtub. He came home drunk one night and passed out in the bathtub and drowned when my dad was three. Um, his mother drank until she drank herself to death. And I was a teenager when that happened. 
Um, she, I think she had cirrhosis of the liver or something, but she died because of her alcoholism. And my dad and most of his siblings grew up in an orphanage. All of her children were taken away at one point or another, and um, he spent almost, when he was five, he went into the orphanage. He was always getting into trouble, apparently, and, you know, but um, he joined the Air Force. I think he was 17 when he joined the Air Force, and he just continued to, you know, drink from then on and until I was in my teens, so... Do you know what made him stop? Was there something specific that you remember from that time period? Well, we always thought it was because my mom finally said, you know, not putting up with it anymore. She threatened a lot. I remember hearing a lot of fights and she would threaten to leave. And she did leave a couple times. And then when my dad was in Vietnam, um, we lived in England for a year and a half. And I think after that, things started to become more serious and um when we became teenagers she said you know the kids are old enough now where i'm not putting up with this anymore and and he quit that's the way we heard it and i don't know if that's what really happened but he just quit he didn't go to a self-help program or he, um, stuff or he goes to aa well he doesn't anymore but um <clears throat> excuse me up until recently when he um started having serious dementia issues. He went to AA meetings for years and years and years. Um, he actually became a uh, counselor before he retired from the Air Force, um, and he ran a um, alcoholics rehabilitation place in California for a while. And So he was pretty serious about his sobriety. So did you ever get to the point where you were comfortable with him? Yeah, I think there was always a still that, you know, he didn't, he didn't communicate a lot. So I think, you know, I don't know if it was the drinking or just the fact that he didn't communicate a lot, that when he did, it was just kind of uncomfortable. So out of you character know, for him. Even on the phone, you know, if you called, um, as, a, as an adult, if I called my parents and he answered the phone, he'd say, hello, how you doing? Great, you know, awesome, let me talk to your mom or let you talk to your mom. And um, so he never really did talk a lot, but after she passed away, he became like this old grandpa that told stories, you know. You'd go to see him and he would just talk about his life and he wrote a book about himself. And um, he just became this really comfortable, fun person, you know, before the dementia took over. It was, you know, it was fun to just sit and listen to him tell stories, and he would talk to the, you know, the grandkids and the great-grandkids and, you know, tell stories and stuff. It was like he became, my mom and dad kind of switched personalities as they got older. She became the one that was more stubborn and strict and, wanted things a certain way, which is how he was when he was younger. And then he became like this person that was just like, whatever, <laughs> everything's fine, you know, easygoing. And so, so I don't want to continue to focus on his alcoholism, but I was going to ask you when you were a young woman, me in your early teens, did you have an idea of what you want your, your life to be like? Did you have this dream or these plans that you were going to make? Oh, I think I always just, I wanted to be married and have kids, and I got married at 19, 
and um, you know, my mom had gotten married at 19, and I thought, well, if she can do it, I can do it, you know, and I, I always felt like I was more mature than most people my age. Children of alcoholics sometimes feel that way. Yeah, and um, so I got married at 19, and um, it didn't work out because we were very different people. Um, he was a good guy. There was nothing wrong with him. We just were extremely different, you know. I was very... I'm a very emotional, passionate, he was very like, yeah, whatever, you know, and it drove me nuts. Um, and I, I guess my path kind of started going downhill a little bit after that because that was my, that growing up, that was what I wanted. I wanted to be a wife, I wanted to have kids, I wanted to, you Did know. you have kids with him? I did, my, my two sons. Um, I had with him and then when we split up I was very afraid to be on my own with two kids I hadn't worked in years other than you know like daycare in the home or I sold Mary Kay for a while you know just stuff where I could be the the person at home that how, old, how old were you when the marriage ended if you were married when you were 19 uh about 26 wow you were still, still very a baby mm -hmm. yeah yeah so I I met my daughter's father and rushed into marrying him because I was afraid to be alone. And, and um, I think I started to, uh, I don't know, I, I, I really tried hard with both my marriages to make it something that was my fault that I could fix. And um, once it got to a point where I realized I couldn't fix things, that's when I, you know, started looking elsewhere and wanting something different. So um, after Jess's dad and I broke up, I, I was, um, I kind of went through my, I don't even know what I'd call it. It, it was, um, I never really had my single years. No. Um, so I started, you know, going out a lot, spending time trying to find someone to fill that you know that void because I always felt like I had to be with somebody so you how how old were you at the point where you when Jess's dad split up 34 wow yeah still young did you find someone new no I found a lot of bad relationships um I I dated, you know, I'd have a year-long relationship with somebody and that wouldn't work out. Or I'd, you know, date somebody for five, six months and that wouldn't work out. And, but I, I was, I, I found I was dating people who had the same sort of issues as my dad. Wow. So I started going to meetings and um, the worst one was I was in a relationship with a guy for almost six years, and he was violent, and he was a hardcore alcoholic to the point where he would have blackouts, and he would, you know, end up in the hospital, and, you know, things like one time um, the police were searching for him in the neighborhood in a helicopter, um, things like that, yeah. And then, uh, 
I realized that I was kind of dating my dad in a way. So you had this epiphany that you were having like a patterns of the same people. Mm-hmm. They were all, they either had alcohol problems or they had, you know, behavioral issues or something. They, yeah. So I think the other epiphany I had was that I was doing this cycle of dating people that I knew were not really available to me. Wow. And I, I don't know if it was something I was doing deliberately or if, if it, I just one day realized like, maybe I just don't want to be involved and that's why I'm dating these people. You know, they're, they're not emotionally available or they're not, you know, what, for whatever reason, um, I knew it wouldn't work out after a certain period of time. And that was, I never really understood why I was doing it, but I definitely was finding the same sort of person over and over until I hit my fifties and came here. And then I was like, I don't want to date anybody anymore. I don't want to be with anybody anymore. I'm like comfortable not putting myself out there. So, And I'm just going to say this. You, you have a very magnetic personality. You're, you're a very attractive woman. There's, you know, is there at some point in your future where, I mean, you know, thinking about just regular companionship, like going to the movies or having dinner, like something not as intense as maybe your previous relationships? I think about it, and I think, you know, I hear all the horror stories about dating and stuff, and I think, oh, my God, do I really? I think it's just right now it's too much effort for me. You know, I'm I'm comfortable, and I'd like to get out of that being comfortable thing, but I don't know if I'm quite ready for it. You know, every time I feel like somebody's showing me attention, I start finding reasons not to like them. So you're, you're being pretty hypercritical just to, mm-hmm. yeah. And that I've, I think I've done that all my life. My mother used to tell me that when I, I had boyfriends in high school or whatever, she'd say, Oh, I wonder how long this one's going to last. Or, you know, it seems like you're already starting to find things wrong with this one, you know? So I think I've always kind of done that. So, so. So what I hear you saying is is that you definitely take a very skeptical eye towards people who come into your life that want to be in a relationship with you. I think I do, yeah. So, which is, it's kind of contradictory because of the, the people that I was getting involved with were all the wrong people. So it doesn't really make sense that I'm critical, but I'm dating the ones that are wrong for me. I'm very complicated. Now, I found, um, I don't know, something hit me when I turned to, like, mid-50s where I started having all these epiphanies about myself. And, it, you know, there were people that reached out to me, um, ex-bosses and people that I went to high school with and stuff. And the things that they told me about me were, like, complete surprises. So... This is kind of a question. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I always ask people, how is the person who is you see as Teresa different from the, pe- the Teresa that other people see? So how do you see yourself and then how do you think other people see you? Well, like you, <clears throat> excuse me, you said, 
you know, you're attractive and you have a good personality and that sort of thing. Um, I know I can be a lot of fun. I know I, I can be the life of the party and I can be funny and things, but um, I don't remember being that way when I was younger. I remember in high school, I always felt like people hung out with me because of my brother. All the girls wanted to hang out with me because they wanted to date my brother. And I started, people on Facebook from my high school started reaching out to me and they all had these stories about me that I don't remember. And one of them said, you were the queen of the high school and you, you know, you were the one that everybody wanted to be like and things like that. And I'm like, how is that possible? I don't remember being that way at all. And um, how do you remember being? Just, I, I hung out with, my favorite things were drama and music. And I hung out with the, the goofy kids that wanted to be in the choir or, or wanted to be in drama um, I didn't hang out with the popular kids. I didn't think that I was popular at all. Uh, like I said, I think, you know, I felt like most people that wanted to hang out with me were either my brother's friends or people that wanted to be my brother's friends. So, you know, I think I was fairly quiet, you know, not very outgoing. Yeah, I just... So how, how do you see yourself now? Hmm. Um, that's a hard question because I think since I've been out here and I, I haven't really tried to make a lot of friends, I think... I've kind of become more introverted, but you know, when I'm around people I know, I'm still that, you know, I still like to have fun and I, I'm, you know, I'm still funny and, um, but I don't go out of my way to be that way anymore. You know, I used to always feel like I needed to fit in and I guess I just, I don't feel that way as much anymore. So. So. When you look back on your life, is there anything about your life that you would you would think that was like um, besides your the, the epiphanies you've been having that was like a momentous moment for you, something that just went snap, aha, about yourself? Hmm. I mean, other than you know, like I said, when I realized the type of people I was hanging around with and reaching out to and including in my life, I, I think that was the big one, like, you know, I don't know, I just, uh, there were a lot of years where I made some really bad decisions and I didn't think I was a good person or a good parent or a good partner, and I um, I think at a certain point that kind of shaped me a little bit, you know, when I realized that that's who I was, or I shouldn't say who I was, but who I was becoming. Um, that, that was probably a time when I had to take a 
look at myself and, and realize that that's not who I wanted to be. Um, but other than that, I don't who know. do you want to be now? She still have a lot of life left to live. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot lately about getting out and being more active and um, I don't know I don't I guess because of where I work with all of these people being older and I see that every day I have a hard time thinking that I have this big future because you, you work in a nursing home or a nursing care facility mm -hmm. so it's like I think partly because of that and partly because of, you know, the fact that it's hard for me to be able to afford to do a lot of things I'd like to do. I would love to be able to travel. I would love to be able to plan a trip every year or every six months and go see Ireland or that's Ireland, Australia. Those are two places I've always wanted to go to, but because of my lack of funds right. and you know and I have as much as I don't do a lot of things I have a very busy life well yeah you know, you're with, very involved with your children and yeah. your grandchildren yeah so I think I've kind of settled into that and I have a hard time breaking out of it but there's part of me that would like to and I think you know, I've been thinking a lot more about that just recently so, I was wondering about um, how you saw yourself as a mother, because you have three kids and now you're a grandmother. How many grandkids do you have? Seven. Seven. When my kids were younger, I felt like I was a really good mother. But once I went through that phase of wanting time for myself and doing things for myself, I think I failed my children a lot. Um, you know, the relationship that, that I mentioned where I was with the alcoholic, um, he made my boys move out of my house, and I allowed it to happen. He um, encouraged my daughter to do things that I would normally have not let her do. Um, and I, I still, I think that's why she's as spoiled as she is now, because I, for many, many years, I was feeling a lot of guilt over that but you know they've forgiven me and they don't think that I should feel that way but I do I think I was a I think I went through a few years where I was not a good parent I I think if you're a, a, any kind of a reflective person at all you you are going to be the hardest judge of yourself for, mm -hmm. no matter who forgives you for what yeah. it's still really hard to forgive yourself for no matter what it is yeah yeah but so, but I mean, but I think now, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm a good parent now. I think sometimes they include me in things when they really would rather be just the kids doing stuff because they don't want me to be alone. Um, so sometimes I think I should, you know, back off and let them do things. I, I do way too much with my kids now, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, just from my perspective, you know, you've really, you know, you stepped into your daughter's life when she needed you again, and you were, uh, I mean, 100% there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I couldn't turn her away. She's, you know, I, again, that, I think part of it is the guilt from things that happened when she was growing up and feeling that some of the choices she's made were because of the choices, choices that she saw me making. Um, but there's no way I could ever turn my kids away if they needed help. Not in me to do that. So, and there were, I mean, even my boys would say, You're doing too much for her. You know, you need to back off and let her learn her own lessons and things. But I still would never do it. Do you think she's learning her own lessons now? I think so. Mm -hmm. There's still times when I'd like to shake her and go, Really? (laughs) You thought getting your nails done was more important? (laughs) You know. She's doing really well. I'm very proud of her now. Uh, she's got some big challenges. She does. And she's, you know, she's working. She's going to school. She's dealing with the issues with, you know, her son. And and that's, um, you know, anytime you have a, a kid who has a disability, no matter what type it is, it puts a real big strain on you, especially if you're, I mean, she's, she's a single parent now. Mhm. Yep. She's. I think she's doing well. Yeah. You want to take a break? It's up to you. Let's take a quick break. So your very white voice. A very white voice. Yes. Because um, I smoked for years, and you know, I started very, very young smoking. And um, when I would wake up in the morning, it would be very very gravelly like this you know so that's what my ex called it my very white voice well I mean it suits you (laughs) it's kind of like when I see you and talk to you it's sort of it just you know it suits you perfectly it's funny I I have a memory of having laryngitis when I was like 17 18 years old I worked in the housing office in the summertime in England and um My job was to help young guys and their families find housing off base. And um, I got laryngitis, and the older lady, she was probably like my age that I am now, but um, I thought she was old then. She said, our phone calls have tripled since you got laryngitis, because when I started getting my voice back, it came back this kind of gravelly like it is now. She said, all the guys are calling and asking to talk to you because they want to hear your gravelly voice. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Weird things that you remember, huh? Yeah, about your life. So talk about, um, we were talking a little bit earlier when we were off, um, about how much effort you've been putting into supporting your daughter and your grandson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she has... Uh, up until the last couple of years, she's pretty much lived with me on and off since she left home at 18. Um, and Jacob was my first, he's not my oldest grandchild, but he was my first um, blood relative, I guess you could call it. I have two stepchildren, step-grandchildren. But he, I was there for his birth, and... Um, he was like my own kid. He lived with me for most of his life until a couple years ago. Um, so 
you know, this, this whole thing with his, all of his different diagnoses and his behavioral issues and things like that. It was pretty much like he was my own child. So, um, making the decisions to well, do. Can I ask what is his diagnosis? Well, there's been so many. He's had, um, ADHD, opposition, oppositional defiance disorder, ODD, um, some sort of depression thing. Uh, what was the other one? There's been so many. Um, different doctors have diagnosed him with different things and have tested him for different things. Um, the only thing they talked about and never really tested him for was um, like a mild autism thing. But several people have suggested that. But, um, you know, just being with me for so many years, there's never been a decision about Jacob that hasn't been my decision as well. We've always kind of just co-parented him. Um, so this, you know, we've tried all these different programs, as you know, and uh, the one he's in now, it's really tough to see him there, but uh, I think it's the best thing we could have done for him. And, um, you know, he seems to be doing a lot better, but it's like he's kind of locked away, you know, it's really weird. It's because he's in a residential um, home. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, I think it's considered like a psych facility, which has that negative, um, you know, it just gives me that kind of negative feeling, the whole idea that it's a psychological thing. I don't know why, because obviously a lot of it is, um, you know, but he's living there and he's in lockdown and, you know, it just feels like he's in a little kid's prison sometimes, but he seems to actually like being there. I think he likes the structure and I like I think he likes the companionship and seeing that other children are like him. He's 11? 12. 12 now. Yeah. I know, and he's getting really big. Well, he's going to get big. Tall. He's going to be tall. And yeah. But for him, this has been good for your family and for him? I think so. I mean, uh, it's definitely good for Jessica, although I think she has a really hard time with guilt you know, leaving him there, but he doesn't really get upset or anything when you, when you leave. Um, he doesn't seem homesick. He mentions every once in a while that he'd like to be home, but he never really seems like he's upset about it. I think he understands that he needs to be there and I think he sees the change. And one of the things that she mentioned uh, a few weeks ago was that he chose to leave the area where they were watching a movie together, all of the kids there, um, and um, go to his room to have just quiet time to avoid getting in trouble because this other child was bothering him. And before that would have never happened. He would have engaged and ended up in trouble. And, um, but it's, you know, it's a 
one day at a time thing. You so know. he's starting to take different strategies. Yeah. Do you think he's starting to understand a little bit more about the difference between fiction and reality? Or does he still fixate on things that are... You know, I'm not sure about the fixating on it. I know that he still doesn't tell the truth. A lot of the time? Okay. Because, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll visit him and he'll say, I'm a... They have a, a numbering system for where they're at behavioral. Um, he'll be like at a two, and four is good, two is average. And we'll say, well, you were at a three yesterday, what happened? And he'll tell us this story about, well, you know, they got annoyed with me because I was being too hyper or whatever. And then the, I don't know what they call him, but the person that's kind of assigned to him will come in and she'll say, did Jacob tell you about what happened yesterday <laughs> and so we catch him a lot not he doesn't it's not like an outright lie but he'll kind of make it sound less than it is so he's still doing that but he's it's like he understands he just still has that impulse control thing and he's working on that but, so yeah. how much longer will he live in the residential home we're not really sure because last week um, he had a bad week and and his mother asked um, like how is how does this affect when he goes home um, because they want her to take him out like she did today and um, what they call a pass take him out for a couple hours and see how he does but if he's not doing well she's not understanding how taking him out is kind of like a reward to him so she was talking to them about that and they said it's usually a minimum of six months and then they will um, determine after six months if they can go home and they said that um, I guess after six months the doctor if he determines that he is ready to go home it's still going to be a few months before they would even start the process for him to go home I think she's enjoying the lack of stress every day because she was talking the other day about how how she was remembering how hard it was every day not to be afraid of him and now he's like the kid and she's the mom and she doesn't have to be afraid now they can have a relationship they can talk about things and normal visits are good and they're laughing and you know, playing a game or whatever and being a mom and a kid instead of being, you know, yeah. adversaries. Yeah. 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 So. And I'm, I'm hoping not that I would say this to her because we still have to be very careful. Our relationship has always been, we're extremely close, but there's a lot of volatility between the, you and your between daughter or me and, and my daughter yeah so I would never say this to her but I'm hoping that she's seeing her part in it as well because she's not the most patient person and she's not she is I think I I don't know if I mentioned this to you earlier but I'm a very I mean I'm a touchy-feely I'm very you know I am very um affectionate um She's not at all. She doesn't like to be hugged. She does not, you know, up until recently, she wasn't, 
she didn't say I love you to me, you know, like if we were on the phone or whatever. My sons always, they never hang up without saying it. Um, but she has never been that way. And I think it got worse with Jacob because she really didn't like being around him. So that got, you know, I, I want her to see that. And he can sense that. In that. Yeah. So. So, so you think sometimes um, her reactions would accelerate things for him? Yeah. And I, me too. I mean, I, I'm sure there were times when I could have been more patient, reacted better. Um, you know, there, it was a horrible thing dealing with that on a daily basis, dealing with him being angry all the time. And it was, and his dad's, odd. his dad's not, no, no. his dad is, this is where I see her going down the same path that I did. Her dad was his, sorry, dad was, um, comes from, from a family of addicts. He's an addict. He's been in and out of jail, prison. He's not in the picture. He comes into the picture long enough to get Jacob's hopes up and then he leaves again. And so he's not a good person. And I guess his family also has, um, most of them have like bipolar tendencies. So I know that she worries that that could be a problem with him as well, with Jacob. So so do they have a plan or is there some kind of process to reintegrate him back into the home where you can all support each other through that? Yeah, um, I haven't really been as involved in those discussions. They you know, discuss all that with Jessica and I don't think they've gotten to that point yet, you know, but, um, yeah, there's, there is a plan that, that they have. I just don't think they've, they're at that point with him where they want to start working on that yet. He's not ready. No. But your granddaughter, his sister, she's, mm -hmm. she's a nut, nutty kid. <laughs> she, um, I think she had a really hard time at first. She was becoming very emotional and moody and they, her and Jess were butting heads a lot, but they're settling into a routine now, which um, for the most part, she has her moments. She's like her mother and she'll, you know, she will challenge you, but um, she's a funny kid. She just, she's kind of happy and, and it's great. It's so nice to see a kid being a kid, you know. She's just goofy and funny and Yeah, she's delightful. She is. Yeah. She is. And so until she isn't. Hey. And then she's like her mom. <laughs> <laughs> but so have you ever had anything really terrifying happen to you in your life? Anything yeah. considered um, to be like it burned in your brain as a a severe trauma or nightmares there scenario. <laughs> oh, I used to be afraid of dark shadows. The show. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> um, 
I used to be afraid of the X-Files, but I still watched it because oh, I liked really? it so much. But it scared the heck out of me all the time. I saw Dark Shadows years ago, and it was the corniest, stupidest thing. And I was like, why was I ever afraid of that? Now, um, the scariest things that I can remember were during the time that I was with that alcoholic that I brought up earlier. Um, there was one time where... Um, he called me over to help him and obviously he'd been drinking again and um, he was out in the backyard and when I got there he took a pellet gun and pointed it at my leg and wouldn't let me go and um, there was nobody around it was the middle of the day everybody was at work there's nobody to to help and I think that was the most scared I've ever been because I knew that he was going to shoot me in the leg with that thing. And he was kind of saying things like, oh, it's only going to hurt for a minute. No, it's not really going to hurt. It's just a pellet gun. He Did was, he shoot you? He didn't. I um, I don't remember how I got out of there, but at some point he either gave up or I got out and he didn't shoot me. But it was pretty terrifying. Because it was right at you. It wasn't from a distance. It no, he was holding through. on to me and pointing it. It was on my leg. So. And it, was that, that the breaking point for you in the relationship? You would think it would be. <laughs> but it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No. No, it was pretty close, though. Um, Were you able to get away from him, or was he going to come after you and find you? Did you have to? He got help. He got sober. We broke up. Um, because his sponsors and people he went to AA with told him that it was best he wasn't in a relationship because of the emotions. And so we broke up for a while and then he got drunk again and he came back and, um, I wasn't having anything to do with it at that point. Um, but there were a few on and off again times and, um, he eventually ended up killing himself. So shot himself in the head. Really? He was pretty sick. And were you part of his sphere at that time, or did you hear about it through other channels? No, I had um, completely gotten away. I was still part, you know, I still kept in touch with his family and everything. And he had moved onto his family's property and was, I guess he had some girl with him, and she threatened to call the police because he was doing one of his crazy, um, you know, violent behaviors. He had a, a way of, it was like his his eyes changed when he got like that. And there was it was like there was nothing there oh. and there was no controlling it. And I guess that must have happened with her and she threatened to call the police. And um, he walked out in front of a bunch of police and shot himself in the head. So, oh. yeah. Pretty sad. Did you grieve over that? How did that make you feel? Or were you? Did you think I did. that could have been me instead of her? Yeah, I think I did. You know, it brought back some really seriously scary moments because there were a lot of them. Um, but you know, I did go to. I didn't go to his memorial, but um, I did meet up with his family afterwards, and it was. It was kind of nice to 
to be able to talk about the part of him that wasn't diseased and angry and um, that was the last time I ever spoke to any of his family or anything but it's still that relationship haunts me a lot there were a lot of things that I did during that time that I wasn't proud of things I would never have done if I hadn't have been in that relationship and it was a really tough time how old were you then? I was 40, I think I was 40 when I met him, 40 or 41, so. I know that's a pretty heavy conversation. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to kind of just change a little 180. and <laughs> Let's just have some happy talk. <laughs> Why not? Is, is there a part of your life that you really cherish? I know that you've, you've definitely reflected on a lot of things, and I, I'm, I'll, I'll say I'm... I'm amazed at how much you have been able to reflect on because a lot of people never even reach that point. But is there some part of your life that is just the heart and soul of delight for you that you um, see as your joy? Well, other than being around my grandchildren, which is an awesome, wonderful thing that I'm able to do now that I'm up here. Um, I think when my dad was in Vietnam and we lived in England, um, you know, my, my mother was English, and so her whole family was over there, and we lived there for about a year and a half, and it was, it just felt like it was more of a carefree kind of time. We were there seeing all of the family. We She had aunts and uncles that we would go what, see. What and, part of England? Um... Hertfordshire was where my grandmother and grandfather lived. Um, not too far from London. Middlesex was where her sister and family lived. But we had uh, we were there, and um, when her her sister got married, we were in the wedding, and it was a very British wedding, you know, with the bridesmaids and the page boys, and it was it was pretty cool. Um, and then I have a second cousin who's in a wheelchair and we would go over to his parents' house and he was older. He was like my mom's age, but, um, we would go over there and they would have, um, this big like party with all the family and we'd listen to all the British music and he was the DJ because he couldn't dance. So he would play all the music and, is that where you loved, became a Beatles fan? That was part of it, yeah. We would listen to the Beatles and the Tremolos and the Turtles and all of those bands. And Yeah, it was, uh, it's always been a fun memory that I, my kids kind of grew up with that memory too because we talked about it a lot. And uh, so they're all big fans of the Beatles and British stuff, you know. So I think that was, I don't know if it was because my dad wasn't there, so there wasn't that that drama with the drinking and stuff, but it was nice to be around family that we didn't see that often. And, you know, it was... And England is charming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would have stayed there. I was actually um, kind of engaged to an English guy. I went to high school there, and then I went to a... They call it a civic college. It's like a junior college here. Um became a hairdresser but while I was there I met this guy who was in the same college learning to be a painter and decorator that was their title 
and um, we started dating and I was going to marry this guy and uh, yeah I ended up meeting my boy's dad and changed my mind and went back to the States but I wanted to live there but it was too expensive but it's funny I went back about 20 years after I left and I looked him up and his parents lived in what they called council houses mm -hmm. where all of the people that don't make a lot of money um, he apparently was an alcoholic he lived in a council house he was you know just all the it was like that circle of life again. <laughs> like he, he was like this, he would have been the same kind of a guy. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. That must have hit you kind of hard where it you were was, like, yeah, it was weird. You had this memory of him and you mm -hmm. thought, oh, he was the one that got away. And then yeah. 20 years later, you find out he would have been the same guy with a different accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's not an intentional thing, but it seems like there's that path of, you know, Oh, that you're attracting something like that. Mm -hmm. So now you've decided you're just going to be single grandma, <laughs> live it up whenever you feel like it, and otherwise take it easy? I joke around with people. Actually, I was talking to somebody at work yesterday, and I said, um, you need to find me a guy with money. And he said, oh, I don't know any guys with money. And I said, then he needs to know how to fix things. He needs to know how to fix the things that are broken in my house and work on cars. But he can't do that all the time. He has to take me on trips. <laughs> and the girls in the office were like, you're not asking very much, are you? But that's kind of like, I don't really, like you mentioned, not necessarily a relationship, but somebody you just hang out with, go to dinner once in a while, go see a movie, go on a trip. I'd be happy a companion. with that. A companion, exactly. Right. Somebody who doesn't want to have to merge households and yeah. finances. Just, I've gotten used to coming home and doing my own thing and not having, especially since Jess moved out. Um, that was the first time in my life, really, that I'd lived by myself as an adult and not had to take care of anybody and not had to... Yeah. basically live by their rules i mean you know you, you, you should see your face how lit up you are right now <laughs> <laughs> it's not not that you don't want to take care of your kids and your grandkids but the fact yeah. that you would finally after all this time since you were 19 and mm -hmm. uh, you have had your independence yeah where you had direction over your own life and your choices just like in the small pieces of life mm -hmm. like what time you eat dinner and what you do make for dinner what and, i eat yeah yeah i can eat a bowl of popcorn if i want and you know <laughs> eat a bowl of cereal or whatever but uh yeah i mean and it's so weird because all of my adult life i thought i need to be with somebody i need to be in a relationship i couldn't even think of being by myself and I think as my kids got older, it became even more serious because, like, they're going to move out and I'm going to be alone. And they think that way now. They're like, Mom, you don't want to be alone. Is that why you have all those dogs? Yeah. <laughs> no, I love my dogs. But no, I just <laughs> kept getting yeah. your dog because you didn't get any of those dogs, right? They were all gifts. <laughs> no, okay. the, no, I got, yeah. um, I got my two dogs. I ended up with my dad's dog. Okay. But um, no, I always wanted dogs. I had dogs and cats you know I never had cats growing up my mom didn't she always said she didn't like the presents that they brought you so we never had cats 
but we always had dogs and birds. And that was the funny thing, the person I was in the relationship with, he had like 30 birds when I met him. He had finches and parakeets and mm. cockatiels, and he even trained doves and um, pigeons and things like that. So I was a bird freak for a while. I had this little bird that used to bury himself down in my shirt, and I'd forget that I had him. And I'd go out to the store, and all of a sudden his little head would pop up and freak everybody out. <laughs> but no more birds. My dogs wouldn't allow it. But yeah, no, I just, um, I think about, you know, like even when people say, you know, let's go out and have a drink or something. My people I know from work, let's go have a drink. And I'll say, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And then I'll find an excuse to get out of it because I'm just like comfortable. Well, maybe you can find someone who can sort of merge with your comfortable. I mean, I think there's still a lot of people out there that don't want a heavy relationship that want some companionship. Mm-hmm. And that's a possibility. You just have to sort of start. It's so much work. <laughs> but maybe it's starting to really paint the picture of what you want in a person. Because mm-hmm. you've been through a lot of versions of people that are very similar. Yeah. And now you know what you don't want. Mm-hmm. And now you do. You want somebody who is handy or can help you out. Because you do, you know, owning an older house is always a yeah. fix, fixing something next on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, taking you to dinner or going... We have a, we live in a beautiful state. There's plenty of places to go I see know. things. I know. I've been here. I realized I've been here almost nine years now, and I've barely seen anything, you know. And uh, I want to start hiking and, you know, going out and seeing things instead of you know, always being busy, just getting from week to week. It's like you work all week. You spend all weekend getting ready to go back to work the next week, you know, grocery shopping and cleaning. And but but I've even seen your face in the last five minutes. Look at how free you've been. And there's ways that you can start to think about how to continue to free yourself up. You can take small trips, start to fulfill your dreams every single week. There's plenty of places to go hike around here mm-hmm. that you can do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, you guys go out all the time. Not much anymore. But, yeah, hopefully soon. We'll get to a better place. But, no, I mean, there's nothing that says you can't have happiness. Everybody deserves it. And maybe, you know, the universe will grant your wish, and maybe you'll find that guy that can fix a car and likes to go (laughs) to the movies and go hiking. Yeah. Thank you for your story, Teresa. Well, you're welcome. When we were finished talking, Teresa asked if I was surprised by her story. I told her I was, but especially by one particular thing. Listening to the choices she'd made, I realized Teresa had detangled herself from a long-term toxic pattern, then reconfigured her life in a new direction. She'd achieved a monumental act of self-compassion that eludes many human beings, even if they do realize they are stuck in a pattern. I was astounded by this, and for days afterward, I smiled every time I thought of the changes she'd made. 